Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Here's your host, Tyler Wagner. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Today, I got Robert M. Herzog with us. So welcome to the show, man. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course, grateful to have you on. So can you kick us off? Just tell us a little bit more about you and what you do. Well, I guess I'm here because this book that I recently published called Views from the Side Mirror, Essaying America, which is a collection of essays that I've been writing over the last 20 years, I think really prompted by the Bush v. Gore election and what that meant for the country, but this continuing evaluation of America, you know, how we got to where we are and what we might do about it to perhaps make it better. Um, maybe the critical way to start off perhaps is that um, I'm a child of the 60s. I grew up during the 60s, a member of the class of 1968. And I think that that really has informed a great deal of my perception of life, whether it's in uh, business or politics, you know, personal or professional. Um, I think it was an era which really, it just didn't ask different, uh, look for different answers. It really asked different questions uh, about how you inject sort of humane values into everything you do. And I think that's informed um, a good part of my life. Got it. Okay. So, um, yeah, let's start like back, um, like way back. So like <laughs> you, you were an entrepreneur for 30 years. Yes. About that. Okay. T tell us about, uh, some of those, uh, like ventures, like the whole kind of ups and downs. Ah, well, there've been both. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. uh, it's not a smooth path um, to put it mildly. Um, well, as I said, I was a, a you know sort of a child of the '60s, and I had evolved um, to where I was uh, director of New York City's energy office, providing sort of alternative energy scenarios uh, for New York City and energy conservation, building solar projects, and so on. <clears throat> and then, um, essentially, uh, I, I met a wonderful woman who had two children and. Uh, I really couldn't afford to put them through school on <laughs> my uh, public salary. So I started my first company, which was Energy and the Environment. Um, ended up um, somehow, I didn't really know much about business or money or those kind of things. I hadn't thought about it, but ended up uh, running five operating companies in four states, uh, dealing with all kinds of energy and environmental issues. So it was really eye-opening. And uh, I kept at that for a while, finally sold that and got into the world of technology and media. Um, mm -hmm which in many ways was more pleasant. A lot of people just still don't like to pay for, you know, energy, environmental kind of things, particularly like cleanups or things like that. Uh, but people do love technology. Um, so I helped, for example, the David Sarnoff Research Center, the old RCA labs, commercialized technology, got involved in creating the first um, major video on demand uh, company in the United States, this is about 1992. Uh, and we thought at the time, gee, poor Blockbuster, they'll be out of business, you know, in two years. So uh, no more late fees, uh, you know, no more uh, having to search for titles in the store. Well, it took about 25 years, um, but it finally happened. Uh, and I learned a good lesson from that, I think, which was that, you know, in the world of startups, which I've been in a lot, it feels like everything has to happen quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. But the fact is infrastructure changes slowly. Uh, and uh, that's true of technology and media. Um, I, my last company, which I just sold, was a, a healthcare software company, and there's no more embedded infrastructure than in healthcare. Um, so I worked really in technology, media. Um, 
helped a friend uh, start a company called City Winery. Don't know if you're familiar with them, um, but it's a company that sets up big venues in a lot of cities to make wine in the city uh, okay. and then pl play music right next to it. And that's been a great deal of fun. Uh, so it's been a, a variety of experiences, uh, entrepreneurial. And as I said, some have done okay and some have not done okay. And you sort of <laughs> learn to, you, you learn to roll with those punches. You know, what, what is the, the saying, you know, if you can treat success and failure as those imposters just the same, uh, it's kind of like that. Yeah, you know, it's one one of the guys I follow the most. His name's Gary Vaynerchuk. Sure. Um, and yeah, he kind of says that too, where it's like social media comments, um, even if they are positive, he doesn't really like he treats them the same as if they're negative, right? He yeah. doesn't he yeah. doesn't hold weight in either direction because he knows who he is. So either way, I I find that to be true. If you get too caught up and all the positive comments, then when you see one negative one, then the opposite's true and it like really hurts you. So. Well, you can tend to, to um, you know, obsess over the negatives. Like when you're giving a talk, you know, and 85% yeah. of the people listening and 5% of them are on their phones and you're paying attention to that 5%. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, you know, so really you can take that. I think there's a, there's a Buddhist saying that everybody's either a lover or a teacher. So you sort of want to take those people as teachers and not be too negative about them. But I'll tell you, it's not easy. You know, I've had some hard times with it. Uh, yeah. And also, you know, money does bad things to people. It just, mm -hmm. you know, the, being involved with money can get people who are otherwise you'd think would never behave like this to do strange things. So, you know, my entrepreneurial experience and actually government, I mean, you know, our political policies these days are so much about money and it's part of the thing that sort of prompted me to do the writing about them. Um, so it's been a, uh, you know, a ride of trying to, to, to bring the kind of set of values that we had uh, that I grew up with and inject them into the way I perceive the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I want to I dive into your, your book, but right before we do, I want to ask about Mount Kilimanjaro. So, because um, I don't want to forget because that's pretty crazy. So can you tell yeah. us about that experience? Uh, it was an extraordinary and wonderful experience. Um, uh, my wife and I were sitting uh, with my mother, I still remember it, uh, saying, gee, what are we going to do next? And my wife, who's from Holland, uh, I don't think I'd ever climbed the hill, said, why don't we climb Mount Kilimanjaro, something I've been wanting to do for years. Um, so that's what we did. We organized with a great uh, tour organization. And I, I, I think I mean, getting up there was tough. There's no question about it. You know, it's not a technically difficult climb. I had done Outward Bound when I was younger, so I sort of had some familiarity with climbing and rock climbing and so on. Um, but this was more just acclimating to the altitude, but also dealing with the people. We've been in Africa a couple of times, and I really got to understand how people years ago could become Africa hands. You know, they'd get their plantation and fly from one to the next. The people are so gentle. They're so soft and comforting and so uh, just Im impressive in the way they deal with other people. So we just had a wonderful time with our guides. Um, the climb itself uh, is not so easy. You start around 6,000 feet, you go from 6,000 to 9,000 a day, then nine to 12. Uh, we spent an extra day there, then you get to 15,500 feet and you're sort of actually in a high desert uh, and it's cold. One of the things I remember is that the, the toilets there had metal seats. <laughs> so you'd go to the bathroom and you'd try as hard as you could not to sit down on the toilet because <laughs> then it was really unpleasant. Um, and then you leave at night, uh, about one in the morning to try to do the climb. Um, and you see the lights of the other groups going sort of crisscrossing up this scree field 
and almost looked like sort of a religious, uh, you know, organization, you know, uh, very spiritual, really. And you get to 17,000 feet and you're looking down on uh, Mount you know, Kenya that you've been looking up at for days. Airplanes are flying lower than you are. Um, and then when you get to the peak, oh, and then the peak, it's 19,342 feet. Um, luckily, I wasn't too affected by the altitude, but I mean, I felt it. But you just you're on the the, the top of Africa looking down, and it, it's a very an extraordinary experience. I remember going down and running down, and then when I met my wife down at the hut below, I really I started crying. It was just such a very powerful experience. Um, oh, that's awesome, man! Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. So that I would I would recommend it to anybody. It's a it's an extraordinary experience. So, but you didn't feel that like the this altitude sickness too much. Like you felt it a little, but not. Not uh, luckily, you know, it's very um, unpredictable. Uh, a couple of years later, I, I climbed uh, the Aconcagua in, in the Andes, um, and that's actually higher. That gets over twenty. You know, I got over twenty-two thousand feet, and I would meet people who I'd sort of seen training. You know, and they were God. They, I thought they were going to leave me in the dust. They were running with forty-pound backs for an hour. You know, up hills and stuff like that. And at 17,000 feet, they were heading down. Uh, the altitude really got them. Um, so mm -hmm. altitude sickness is very unpredictable. There's something called Diamox, which people take. I think if you had the Diamox concession on Kilimanjaro, you can make good money. <laughs> but uh, oh, okay. um, uh, but I, I was lucky. I just I wasn't too affected. But I mean, you feel the lightness. At Aconcagua, I slept two nights uh, over 19,000 feet. And that I really, you know, you feel it. Um, you don't sleep well. You're not very hungry. You just, it's, it's, that's more like what you see on TV. They're really the tough conditions. Somebody around the hill had died of a pulmonary edema that same day. So, you know, you really feel it a little differently. Um, on the other uh, hand, uh, when, yeah, when, when you do it, I'll, I'll say one thing about being on the mountain. It's, it's all you think about. It's clarifying because it's the only thing you think about. It's really extraordinary. Now, now just because I'm not familiar, is that, is, so people have like that's dangerous that the altitude sickness it, what does it do it's just like shortness of air like, you get an edema you get um, um yeah. clots and um uh people you know lose that's right you lose oxygen etc uh and so okay. yeah it's it's very, about, about i think on kilimanjaro maybe about 40 uh, percent of the people who start make it and uh, concagua it's a little less and so on so it gets it gets oh, okay. hard at that altitude um but as yeah. i said it's 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 a very it's a very clarifying experience in a way because you, all you think about is just putting that one foot in in front of the next mm -hmm. <laughs> and let me get up the hill <laughs> yeah yeah and the, oh so that that was the one one last point i want to ask so then once you're up there and you're feeling like that way then when you come back to normal like is it like better in in the normal or is the normal the same you know what i'm saying like is it like because you went through that and you made it then is breathing this kind of like normal air easier? oh for a while you feel really yeah you feel pumped that's why you know distance okay. runners train at altitude so you do kind of feel pumped but to be honest that kind of goes away part of it is because you know by my legs were shot. <laughs> so oh, <okay. laughs> I wasn't able to run for a few weeks afterwards and so on. So, you know, it, it, it takes its toll, but uh, um, gotcha. just the, the feeling of being up there is just an extraordinary feeling. Gotcha. All right. So, so yeah, let's, um, let's talk about the book. So it's called views from the side mirror essaying America. So right. tell us a little bit like, uh, and you kind of did in the intro there, but tell us a little bit, uh, just like kind of the description, like what, what's it about? 
Well, it's a, a, a series of essays that I've written over the last uh, 20 years interspersed with um, a very personal um, pieces about what it like to live uh, in Lower Manhattan, which is where we lived uh, after September 11th, um, when the world really collapsed down to us. You know, we were living in a place where we had to show our papers to get to where we lived. Um, there was this tremendous sense of loss and, uh, and unease and just discombobulation, you know, and so many things were closed. All the ambulances and the cars heading north were covered with the dust from, you know, the, the, the Twin Towers. So there's sort of a set of essays um, interspersed into this, but the other essays are about really America as it's developed since the Bush versus Gore election. And I think what that meant really precipitating, I think sort of a, a crisis really in American government um, in the sense of a, frankly, a sort of an anointed president that didn't, when they didn't allow sort of state processes to continue. Um, and I think that that um, almost the stench of that corruption has really stayed with us. Uh, it started some years before, I would say, uh, when the Republicans really became elected into Congress, really so pursuing their own self-interest. And I think that we've evolved out of that time period, um, you know, into an era where uh, there's just politics is just so dominated by very narrow self-interests and, and the inability of, uh, of people to combat those self-interests. Um, so we have, you know, just enormous wealth inequality. We have um, really, we have, a, we live at a time when you, our human organizations, our social organizations are kind of failing to meet our needs. You know, uh, as, as there are people who are hungry, yet there's so much food. Um, there are people who are poor, yet there are so many resources. There are people who are ill when they don't get access to medicine, even when it's available. Um, and so we really need to sort of try to figure out how we can create a social organization and political organization uh, that does better. And the book is really an ex exploration of how those things have played out, examples of them, um, and what we might do about them. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so now, just so I'm clear, how did you actually get involved um, like in in this topic like what because so the entrepreneur for 30 years and that so so you see what was like the the segue to to this well i just why do you write i mean you know my, my, yeah. um you may know I, I i had a novel published about three years ago okay. um and the novel is quite different the novel is sort of this um sort of wacky mix of, of, of politics and science. Uh, the, the opening lines in the novel, it's called The World Between, by the way. Um, yeah. And the opening line of the book is, um, parts of the world were disappearing for a while, nobody noticed. And it's sort of the way that political uh, and bureaucratic organizations respond to crisis, which, you know, at the time sort of felt like it was a metaphor a bit for climate change. And now we're dealing with yet another sort of, um, you know, crisis. And, how bureaucracies mm -hmm. have a very hard time dealing with them. Um, I was um, I was kind of a, a child science whiz growing up, so I've always loved physics. Um, and then, as we talked about earlier, when I I read uh, Nietzsche in college, and Nietzsche yeah. said, yeah, Nietzsche said that um, a, a fact is only a truth when it's subjected to a human value system. And that had a huge impact on me. So I switched from physics and ended up in political philosophy. A strange journey 
Um, so I think I've always been interested um, in observing the way the world works. Um, when I graduated from college, uh, I ended up in sort of a, a domestic Peace Corps organization called the Teachers Inc. Uh, and the idea was to place people graduating from, you know, liberal arts colleges the way I went uh, to um, in communities that were ripe for change in order to uh, help effectuate better education systems for them. And let me tell you, education also is an embedded infrastructure. And, and part of it, uh, I lived for a, a, a summer, that family with a black family in a housing project, South Smith projects in the Lower East Side. And there were so many things that I had taken for granted that when you experience directly what it's like living like that, that you start saying, wait a minute, there's just a different way of thinking about things. You know, for us, you know, the $20 application fee at the time to apply to college, well, if you really want to go, of course, you'll have it. Well, for some people at the time, that $20 was the difference between applying for college and a meal. And uh, it just makes you think about um, the world. And uh, I had a great political philosophy professor, actually, uh, at Williams College, a guy named Bob Godino. And the essence of what he said was that, really, at the end of the day, all politics is personal. It's so much of you know, what we inherited, you know, when we grew up, mm. um, what we observe, what we see. Um, and so uh, I've always been interested in that. Um, I worked in politics um, starting in 1972, if you can believe it. I was uh, running the parts of Connecticut for George McGovern. So I guess it gives away a little bit what my politics are. Um, and so I've always been interested, but it's been that intersection between politics and, and living, you know, the way policy uh, on high affects people in the streets. So that's always really just intrigued me. And I started sort of, I guess, meditating, thinking about that. And then it was brought home so strongly um, during that election, the 2000 election, you know, what the impact of that could be. I mean, imagine how different the world's headlines would have been had Gore been elected instead of Bush, or even if the natural processes uh, had been allowed to play out in Florida for the counting for the legitimacy, but instead we've twice had presidents in our lifetimes, you know, that were elected by minorities. And, you know, we live really in, in right now in the tyranny of the minor minorities. Um, uh, Congress, uh, the Supreme Court, the presidency really controlled, um, not by the will of the people. And I think that's dangerous. And so it really prompts me to write about it because I care about the world around me. Um, at the same time, I think, you know, a lot of people of my era, it's been so difficult to cope with, so unexpected, you know, the world that we live in now compared to what we thought where, thought where it was heading um, during the late 60s, early 70s, say. And I think part of the response to that has been somewhat, you know, naturally sort of almost alienation. I want to give up. I want to create my family life. I want to live that decently. I want to, you know, have a decent work and fulfilling work and uh, let that allow for, for me to have a fulfilling life in a way. But it's hard to sort of live that kind of life when you're in the middle of such sort of distressing um, policies and events. Uh, so I think it's been this sort of this dialogue for me and for many people like me between sort of trying to live lives that are fulfilling, bring a set of humane values to our lives, whether in our personal or, or our professional lives. Um, and when confronted with the difficulties of doing that, um, trying to, for me, it's been uh, just trying to sort of express something about how we can do something about it. 
Got it. Okay. So it's always, um, and I guess that's where I was going with it is like, as you were building these companies and stuff, because now that you even said your first book too, it does seem you're definitely interested in like politics. Yes, definitely. Okay. I'm just, yeah. (laughs) Um, That, that makes sense. Okay. And have you, you've actually, cause I, I did do political, you, you were a political consultant. Right? Well, um, or, just or, a, no, not really. I, I well, I, I, um, for the years around after the McGovern campaign, I then worked, um, for a, a liberal art guy running for mayor in New York. Okay. And then, um, I actually sort of was a, became almost like an election day specialist. I had a really great operations things running big, um, election day campaigns and so on. But that sort of stopped. I went to graduate school um, and got very involved, uh, interested in um, energy issues uh, because mm. just doing a little research at the time, it became very obvious that America could run on you know, 40% less energy with no impact on our lives. And yet we weren't doing that. And at the same time, you, know, you had guys like Dick Cheney who wanted to build you know, a nuclear power plant a week. Um, and it just there was just just huge disconnect between um, what was reasonable and achievable and, and and what was being done. And I think that's still true. It's true, obviously, with climate change today. It's it's true with um, environmental policies, et cetera. So um, it's really it's trying to bridge this gulf between what's um, what's happening and what could be happening. You know, uh, and, and that's really. So I think my interest in politics was more my interest in sort of you know, more almost basic human questions. Um, For example, identity. I think we live in an age today when identity is really so tied up with politics. So how can you build, and identity is important to people. You know, you don't want to just associate with the globe. You want to associate with a smaller set of people and ideas and, and institutions. But how do you build identity without promoting prejudice? I think that's a, an enormous question. You know, how do you have, um, And I I think part of that is by creating an underpinning where people feel sort of safe and secure in who they are. You know, I mean, part of the the knock on the 60s, I think, was, oh, people were self-indulgent. And I think that's nonsense that, you know, okay, boomer to me is not okay. It wasn't about self-indulgence, although it's easy to see how self-indulgence can um, mask, uh, you know, self-expression can mask self-indulgence in a way. So I think what we we're trying to do then was to allow people to express themselves, but without judging those around them. And I think we've kind of lost that non-judgment thing. And I think that the nature of our politics today, this polarizing nature, um, encourages judgment, encourages negativity, you know, an, an, an us, them versus mentality. So uh, how yeah. can you, how can you, you know, overcome that? That's a basic both political and social question. Yeah. So what do you think? You may have already said, so just, just so you're aware and for the listeners, cause I'll just be honest, uh, politics, I don't follow that much. Sure. Um, <laughs> so some, some of it's definitely a little over my head, but, I, but I'm curious on your answer to this meaning like what, why it, it seems to me, and I think, I think you said this, I think you're right here where your upbringing has a lot to do with like your views on things. So yep. it's, it's like, I, to me, what I what I find so interesting is it's like, how is there people like Trump and then people like Bernie that mm-hmm. to me seem so opposite um, in their in their viewpoints? Um, but yet and there are people, you know, there's like half the people think Trump is 100 percent right and Bernie's 100 percent wrong. And then the other half of people think the opposite. So to, 
to me, it's like, I guess there's really no wrong or right necessarily. It's just like, it's, it's, it's opinion based off viewpoints of how you were um, brought up. Like it's, you know what I mean? Cause it's like, it's either half of the <laughs> half of America's yep. nuts or I don't know. So I find that fascinating how it, you, people just think the complete opposite. You know, actually, Bernie attracted, I think Bernie in, in the primaries in 2016 attracted a lot of the people who ended up voting for Trump. And I think yeah, it was people who I heard that people who were disaffected, people who were feeling, you know, um, I'm paying for something that other people are getting for free. You know, my job security is uh, in, in jeopardy. Um, and I want anybody who will do something about that. Um, and so I, I think that there actually is somewhat of an overlap there, this sort of anger, you know. I, I remember Occupy okay. Wall Street, um, you know, I, I sort of sat in the, uh, the, there and, and just talked to a lot of people there. This is the first articulation of sort of the 1% versus the 99%. Mm -hmm. And I think okay. it was this, again, it goes back to these feelings of sort of alienation of not being able to feel a sense of control. Um, and I think people really, uh, unfortunately, I think the Occupy Wall Street movement just never coalesced around a, a political agenda. And I think Sanders, in a way, began to, I don't want to say it was the legacy of that, but I think that he picked up on that in a way, since he was talking about it for so many years. Um, and I do think there is a sense that, that, again, I think that social organizations, political organizations have failed us. And, and I think, just think about how education is, you know, I, I, when I taught public school in New York, I mean, I never met a kid really who couldn't learn. And yet over the course of their time in schools, they were just decimated. It was almost to me like genocide. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that these, these bad education systems, they do have an impact. They keep the people in power in power because there's this failure of critical thinking, you know, frankly, you know, any country where you know, some measurable percentage of people think that Sarah Palin made sense, you know, it's, we're not thinking critically. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I think that the powers that be tend to want to keep themselves in power. And we've had this kind of dynamic now. Uh, but you know, this, this notion about, you know, how you um, growing up has such an impact. I, I will never forget during the civil rights movement, seeing these cute little blonde 12 year old girls with ponytails spouting venom at black kids who were trying to integrate a school. Now, where did they learn that? You know, this is something that they came from out of their households, you know, out of generations of this being passed down. You know, you now have this rise in sort of anti-Semitic um, activity around the country and, um, you know, where, where do people learn that? And these are kids doing, you know, painting swastikas. So, you know, you have a sort of an environment um, where you're not challenged and where you're, where you just, where you're reinforced in, uh, in your thinking and your principles, et cetera. And that leads to sort of, again, this, this much greater polarization in, in the way that we're living. And we don't really have ways. It's gotten worse in my lifetime, I would say, not better. Um, and, and I think that there are a lot of reasons for that. And so the book, in a sense, um, you know, I call it views from the side mirror because I always feel like I've had sort of a sideways view to <laughs> the way the world works. So sort of an yeah. orthogonal, orthogonal view. But I think that that's the way the, um, the world is operating right now. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with people being wealthy, but I do think there's something wrong with people being poor. Um, yeah. Uh, so let me ask you that. So like, because I've, I've thought this too, like, 
I think the world, and again, just, I just need to preface this, my, my lack of knowledge of understanding how a lot of this economic stuff actually works. Um, but just my kind of logical brain says, I don't understand with all of the abundance in the world, how people are actually going hungry. Yep. Like that doesn't make sense to me. So like how is it, are you saying it's kind of because like the rich just keep getting richer and they're not, or, or is there actually another way maybe to, to fix the issue? Well, um, corruption is one big issue. So in the rest of the world, Okay. Uh, you know, for, for, for every dollar that goes into a, a, a country in need, you know, maybe, a, you know, a, a dime to a penny of it really ends up with the people who need it. Um, but it, it's more, um, you know, the, the issue of food distribution is a, is a classic example. Why? I mean, I, I look, I don't, if I had a solution, you know, I might be one of the yeah. se 17 people who would run for president. <laughs> but, yeah. but, uh, I know um, I'm asking big questions. <laughs> yeah. How do we well, solve I think this? It's good. I think it's good you're asking big questions because I yeah. think the, the problem is we take so much for granted. I mean, I'm guessing your life, your everyday life probably isn't all that affected by issues around whether immigrants are being held at the border or whether some people are being hungry or badly educated. But those are important mm -hmm. issues. And I think what's happened is there has been this, certainly in this country, um, really for the last 25 years, there's been this kind of rapacious attempt by the people with the money and the power to keep it. Um, you know, they realized um, somewhere along the line, somebody came out, you know, 22, two, three decades ago that the United States would be more than half non-white by 2050. I think now it's 2046. And I think they just said, wait a minute, we got to do something about this. So they have tried to consolidate power and wealth amongst themselves. You know, but people look at the Bush presidency and say, oh, not a very good presidency, you know. Well, I think it was a very successful presidency in terms of wealth consolidation, you know, uh, the, the, the tax cuts that he enacted, even though he was a minority elected president. So when you, when you have tax policies which continue to aggregate wealth with more people, it makes it harder for other people to, um, you know, to get the basics in life. Uh, and when we had this financial crisis, which was all these predatory, horrendous practices by financial institutions that weren't being regulated, um, then the people, uh, and I, I blame Obama for this in a way, the people who sort of caused this crisis were then the people in, in government who um, they, they were asked to try to solve the crisis. So guys from Goldman Sachs put Bear Stearns and Lehman, and the Lehman Brothers out of business. Meanwhile, they bailed out their buddies and the rest of the banks and 11 million people with lousy mortgages, um, you know, were never really helped. Uh, and I think that there's a very consistent policy, which is about wealth consolidation. If you follow the money, then I think you get to understand a lot of why, for example, there are a lot of people who don't have food or medicine in this country. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, this the so-called signature accomplishment uh, of Obama, you know, Obamacare, which insured more people, but, you know, there are still millions of people under or uninsured. Well, the Republicans have tried for several hundred times to repeal that. And now the third time they're trying to push it at the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, you had tax cuts, you know, successive tax cuts from Reagan and Bush and now Trump, which have given much more money to fewer and fewer people. How many times have the Democrats tried to challenge those tax cuts? Um, you know, one of the pieces in my book is, is, said, is that the fundamental dynamic uh, of American politics over the last two, three decades has been this venality versus haplessness. 
Now, the Republicans relentlessly pursue money and consolidation of power. And the Democrats try to reach out across the aisle and try to be nonpartisan and try to share. And frankly, they're just not doing a very good job for us. It's kind of like we need the Avengers and we got the Muppets. Mm. (laughs) And we need we we need a more powerful sort of counterbalance to that, because um, otherwise, you know, I just have a new piece I'm working on. It's called Waiting at Gettysburg. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, with a, sort of a century, two score and 17 years ago to, to echo the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln stood on that podium at a field of battle. And the outcome of that battle, the outcome of the soul of the nation was in doubt. You know, could a nation so conceived and so dedicated, you know, of, by and for the people survive? And we learn in our textbooks, you know, oh, America is an experiment. Um, but we never really took that seriously. But the fact is experiments can fail. And we live, I think, at a cusp moment right now because there's a tendency, um, you know, in, in, in the 60s convulsive times sort of sprouted this kind of anti-authoritarianism, you know, let's, let's figure out really the basics. Let's ask the right questions. Well, now this, and this convulsive times are tending towards authoritarianism. And I think it's very dangerous. Um, and yet we all feel so helpless in the face of it. Um, you know, we, we wonder, oh, what would, what would we have done in Germany when things started going south there? Well, what did people do when we learned about Guantanamo here? What do we really do when we see uh, mothers separated from children at the borders? Um, I think these are very dangerous uh, times for the, for the experimented democracy that we live in. Um, and my book really is an attempt to um, sort of address some of the things that we can do about that. Got it. Okay. So there's two, um, from the table of contents, there's two chapters that I want to ask you about. Okay. Um, that uh, just the titles of them were intriguing to me. So w- we need a new party. Yes. So what would, I'm assuming that's, you kind of maybe explain like what um, the new party would look like. So can you explain that one a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Um, well, my basic thesis is that if the Republicans and the Democrats were waiters, that we'd send them back to the kitchen for lousy service. And instead, <laughs> instead, we were forced to give them a tip. You know, um, yeah. I just think that both parties, both parties have failed to give us, again, going back to this basic issue, are they created institutions that are educating most people, that are keeping most people healthy, um, are providing you know, safe environments for them in terms of their uh, ability to find decent work um, and, and live well. Um, and I think that they've really, uh, interests have been defined so narrowly by both parties, really. Um, so I think that sort of we're faced with these ideologies that are sort of, they don't have much of a harder mind and I think we're in danger of losing our soul. So I thought, you know, let's, what about a new party? Um, and I called it the Buffalo Party. Mm-hmm. And I called it the Buffalo because the Buffalo is a uniquely American icon, right? Both in the flesh and as a symbol. Um, and when Indians killed the Buffalo, they used every bit of it, right? They ate the meat, they worked the hides for clothing, they even used the cartilage for their bowstrings. So nothing went to waste and every part served the purpose. And I think that's what the Buffalo party sort of stands for, the strength of a Buffalo in that it's, it's legitimate authority. I mean, those were real creatures that had inherent strength to themselves. It wasn't power gained at somebody else's expense. Um, but also it shows our limits because the buffalo nearly can't, became extinct because of the stupidity and the short-sightedness of you know, those people who would you know, just shoot them you know, going by in trains out the window and almost destroyed them all. So it represents the potential for tragic human consequences. And I think that's 
again, we've had catastrophic failures of management, both public and private. You know, when, when the auto companies needed bailing out, financial institutions needed bailing out, governments have gone to wars for, you know, over lies and bad reasons. And even when they fight them, they end up not then cleaning up the mess that they create well. Um, so I think this represents a sense of limits, um, but also a sense of hope because there was redemption. The Duffalo was saved from final extinction. Um, and then it, it's an argument for conservation, making the most of a scarce resource, you know, reducing waste, um, you know, and accepting that. Um, the Buffalo is also the, you know, the, the back of the nickel when the nickel is worth something. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, fiscal sanity in a way. So I really think it's sort of a, it's a sort of a very powerful homegrown symbol of, um, of America in a way. And I say that we need a new party because um, repeated, we've had repeated failures. I mean, the country clearly for many, many people and in many, many directions just doesn't work very well. Um, but this, the, we almost have a cartel, these political parties that have like a monopoly status and they scare us if we don't buy their product, then you know, we're wasting our vote. Um, which, by the way, is a terrific argument. I, uh, I did work for a not-for-profit promoting this, this sort of this ranked choice voting, you know, where you vote for your first choice, but then your second choice, and then your third choice. Mm. And each time that, uh, that they do the count, the lowest one drops out, and the second choice is there, then are accounted for those people, et cetera. So it means that I think a, 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 a the Buffalo party, other parties would have a chance because instead of just only saying, oh, if I don't vote for a Republican, I don't vote for a Democrat, I'm wasting my vote. Now you have an opportunity to really express uh, a party that would express your own interests. And maybe enough of that will coalesce that either the competition to these entrenched, uh, you know, monopoly political parties will force them to change or we'll get some new uh, energy into the, a system that really badly needs it. So that's my idea. Just the Buffalo Party, you know, America. I like it. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the the other one is the God we lost. Uh, that's uh -huh. intriguing to me. Can you speak on that one? <laughs> well, uh, that was perhaps a little presumptuous, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, um, I really took a position of a deity looking down on us, and he's saying, "Well, I can't say. I'll just say what." WTF, you know, what the... Mm, you can curse um, on here if you want. Okay, what the fuck, you know, what are you <laughs> doing, you know? Um, yeah. I, I, I've given you orgasms, I've given you joy, I've given you, you know, beautiful forests and great hills and mountains and stuff, and what are you doing with it, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. And so it's really to say, um, let's take a, a step back, um, you know, as to how, I think how we use belief in a way that could be an opening to the world and to other people as opposed to using beliefs that so define your identity as to close you off to other people. Um, you know, so in the God we lost, you know, that God says, hey, are you nuts? You think that I created one group of people and I like them more than the other. And if they don't believe it your way, then they're them and you're us. It's crazy, you know, let other people be, you know, let people worship as they want. You know, people are like snowflakes. They're all different. And that's, that's the wonder of it all. That's the beauty of it. Um, so, uh, you know, one thing is just to say, let, don't let a particular form of your religion, whatever it is, let you reject other people's forms of religion, you know, make you think you're better or than somebody else or worse, because um, you're not. Um, one of the things I suggest, 
<laughs> I think that no, I think there should be no dogma in religious uh, ceremonies. Uh, I think that mm -hmm. they should never be in a service in any form of a religious institution that's the same way twice. So every time you're there, if you really want to express it, then express it the way you feel it in that moment. Get rid of this ritual adherence to liturgy and you know to old versions of liturgy and so on. But instead, really think about what this means to you in relationship to your world. And don't just follow stale scripts that kind of re reinforce the things that separate you from others, you know, written really by fearful folks in tough times. I mean, a lot of this is such a, um, uh, you know, these are legacies of, uh, from a long time ago. Um, and really, you know, in a, in a way, you know, the constitution is a little bit like the Bible. The essence of these, these great documents are live and let live do unto others, you know, and we kind of let those things get lost by um, narrowing our belief system in such a way that we want to we get polarized from other people, you know. So uh, this, this God, he's talking to people, one of the things he says is, hey, just because men can bench press a few more pounds than women, it doesn't mean that they have any more rights. You know, women really are created equal and don't impose any, you know, restrictions on them. And I, that cuts across the board for me, whether it's uh, the way they have to dress, uh, the, whether they can vote, whether they have the same rights, uh, you know, whether they can control a particular, obviously, in this country, whether they control their own bodies. Um, and let, you know, it shouldn't be just men who create the rules. It's men and women, uh, and they should be equal on that. And I think that um, it really goes to the heart, again, of what I said earlier about human organization, which is that we organize things around these abstract principles around say church in this instance, but also state, you know, uh, political organizations or corporations, you know, or businesses um, around the, the, the material things of money, et cetera. When, you know, so many studies show that um, if you have a sense of community, if you have a sense of bonding, a sense of fellowship with other people, your life is going to be a more satisfactory life. And it's, it's, if people don't restrict your ability to those resources, again, to, to food, medicine, you know, education, um, roof over your head, a decent, decent work. Um, you know, the, a prophet is not mentioned in the Bible, as it were, uh, you know, nor wealth or identity so much. Um, you know, keep that beautiful, this God is saying, keep that beautiful air and water clean. You know, don't despoil it just to make some more money. You know, don't trade, trade the power for, you know, for death in a way. Um, so uh, that's what it's about. Um, as I said, that this God gave us a whole lot of wonderful things and, you know, look what you're doing with it. Um, and then he says, actually, at the end of it, I think he says, hey, I got to go. He's going to play poker with some of the other guys. <laughs> you know. Um, uh, uh, and he says, um, Nikki says, I'm going to have a poker game with some people over in the next universe. Says, by the way, they have, <laughs> by the way, they have nothing to do with strings, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but I think it's, it's, again, it's a way of just thinking about um, equality, about distribution, about fairness, um, you know, about a sane way to, it goes back to the question you asked, you know, why there, why with so much food do people go hungry? And what do we do about that? Um, you know, and again, I, as I said, I, I think we can encourage um, the vitality of trying to create wealth, um, but we don't have to do that by um, having horribly inequitable distribution of that. Um, one of the things I never understand, like you were saying earlier, is, you know, people who live in this country who've made a lot of money, and there's certainly a lot of them, um, 
this country gave them the infrastructure. It gave them the opportunity to do that. So why, why will they not give some back? Why are they so rapacious? Oh, uh, this God forbid, you know, that you uh, try to raise your taxes by a point or two, you know, and, and they, they go crazy over it. When in fact, th there was, there used to be a sense of the common wheel, the commonwealth, you know, the people mm -hmm. act, you know, particularly representatives, um, they, they're acting ultimately when they get into that position, they act for the good of all. And, and I think that we, we lost that. I think that started in the 1994 midterm elections when Newt Gingrich came into power and um, he brought in people who really just put the special interests above their common interests. And it was so stunning, you know, in 2000 when they kind of were able to steal the presidency really, that we never had a party that really was able to um, you know, adjust for that because the, the the Democrats still believe that the other guys still have the same kind of values. You hear Joe Biden talk and he still thinks he can reach out across the aisle. And these are people who, when Obama first, you know, spoke publicly, one of them yelled out liar to him. I mean, it's just, there's a different set of perceptions that people have. Um, mm -hmm. But one side just hasn't caught up to that, but the other side has been very, very clear, you know, that Gingrich, the Koch brothers, whatever, let's get control of the states, let's get control of the judiciary, let's enact our agenda, because that way we get the pipelines, we get the, um, um, you know, the, the, the lower taxes, we don't have control over fossil fuels. Um, and, you know, this notion that they don't believe in climate change, mm -hmm. just think about that. I mean, you know, why is that? Well, it's because they make more money that way. Um, so again, I'm not opposed to, you know, wealthy people are making money, but, you know, we're trying to get wealthy. I think it encourages a lot of activity, but there's gotta be a better way than to um, let people do it by despoiling the environment, uh, et cetera. Um, so I think that's, that's um, another big issue that we really face. And, and finally, I think, you know, we really are confronted with an incipient authoritarianism in this country. Um, you know, I knew, Trump in New York when he was called the Donald and he was kind of a joke, frankly, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, um, I guess I didn't keep up with reality TV and understand how he came to understand how to really manipulate people so effectively. Uh, and he's very cunning and clever in doing that, um, for his own purposes and for the purposes of, you know, whatever he said before, the fact is he's enacted more, um, rules and regulations. You know, we see that we, we, we see the big stuff, uh, you know, but on the surface, but underneath that, you know, the impact of these tax cuts, the impact of, you know, despoiling federal lands to, 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 to get resources out of them when you could get them other ways. Um, you know, so how do we keep uh, authoritarianism from taking root in this country? You know, can it happen here? And I don't think that the, the, the constitution was really quite prepared for somebody like him. Um, um, so, uh, you know, a lot of the book has talks about, um, one of the other chapters in there is called the tyranny of the minority. And, uh, you know, we've lost the sense of checks and balances. The, the Senate is an extension of the presidency, uh, the Supreme court, you know, how they're going to vote all the time. They basically now become an extension of Republican ideology around morals, as well as uh, the political issues and culture. Uh, and the house, you know, well, there was a turnaround in 2018, maybe that's hopeful, but then you see how inept they've really been. There are hundreds of House bills that sit, uh, you know, on the Senate, uh, the desks of Mitch McConnell that aren't going anywhere around things like gun control, um, say. So we have a, a tyranny of the minority in this country. If you added up the populations 
of the senators who voted for impeachment or the senators who voted against, say, these tax decreases. It's more than half the country. It's like 55, 60%. And yet we don't have a, the majority will. And I think it's, 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 it's great to protect minorities, obviously. We want to protect um, you know, uh, uh, people's rights in a great many ways, but you also have to have a semblance of majority will in place. And, and we have voter suppression, which keeps people from voting, who otherwise might change the results. We have this gerrymandering, which keeps these districts safe for people who can do whatever they feel like. And we have an electoral college, which is no longer um, really, you know, when, 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 the, when the Republic was founded, the ratio of populations of big states to small states was 13 to one. It's now almost 70 to one. So the notion of one man, one vote, which we all again grow up reading our textbooks saying, wow, that's America, it's gone. <laughs> so how do we you know, reinstate some of these founding principles before it's really too late, before more people are hurt, whether it's at the borders or whether more federal lands are despoiled or more the environment or, or before climate change uh, has an impact that's irreparable. Uh, and these are the issues that I think we face. And so that's part of the reason that I, you know, sort of, that I, that I write and that I thought about these things and finally, you know, um, publish the book. Got it. Yeah. This is really insightful, man. I, um, look, I, 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 the floor is yours. I really last question is, uh, if there's anything else you want to share, go ahead. And, and then I also, um, you know, please restate the book so people can find that website. And if, are, are, if you, are you active on like any socials that people can follow you on? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, the book is called Views from the Side Mirror, Essaying America. Uh, and you can buy it um, certainly on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. It's, uh, you know, self-publishing is its own world. I'll say that. And it took me a lot of time to accomplish a lot of these things. Um, but nonetheless, it's available for distribution. So if you go to your bookstore, um, you can get that. You can get my first book, A World Between, um, which is that book of mixing sort of science and politics. Um, and I have, um, I publish on medium.com. I have a few pieces there. In fact, ironically, the last piece in the, the book is called Trump virus or vaccine. Mm. And, you know, what, what is a vaccine? A vaccine is an attempt to inoculate you against something that's worse. Um, and so the question that it raises is, is Trump his brand of sort of, uh, you know, the, the personal politics uh, that's so terrible. Is, is he inoculating us maybe against that? There'll be a reaction to it that it's gotten into the system in a way that we're producing the antibodies. Um, or is he permanently infecting the body politic? And there's actually, I think if you go to a meeting, you'll see a pretty funny, uh, this is way before this, the current crisis, but there's a, I th there's a great picture, I think, a graphic I created, which is Trump in the middle of what looks like a virus. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, and it looks great online in color. So, um, you know, I, I think that um, I do want to end with maybe a little bit more sort of a hopeful thing. I think that one of the, the next to last pieces in the book is called Liberals Barbecue Two, And it's in part to say, you know, conservatives don't have a monopoly on family values. Um, uh, and that, you know, we've, we've attempted, you know, liberals just like the, the 60s ideology was an attempt to... Um, you know, in, inject sort of a certain kind of respectful values into the public space as well as into our private lives. Um, and a lot of that was about improving the lives of others. And, you know, I mean, there's talk about the elites and so on. You know, I, 
most of the people I know have worked most of their lives, 60 hours a week or more, really in service of other people. Uh, and I think that we spend so much time trying to figure out why people vote for Trump. We should remember that, that there's a majority of people um, that, you know, that there's an America that's really, you know, um, uh, a, a better America than, than what's being expressed right now. And so we can really um, find that sense of community. And I don't mean the community of Mar-a-Lago and the narrow country club. I mean the community the sort of the, that's heterogeneous and mixed and, and, and kind of messy, but really vital and, and a great deal of fun. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, the, the, the sad thing is that I believe that there is common ground between, I believe that the sense that um, relationships around more than property, around family and friends, around children and parents and colleagues um, are vitally significant to a satisfying well-lived life. And I believe that both liberals and conservatives share that. So if they would sort of stop trying to particularly impose their kind of moral judgments and constraints on others and how people should live, and let live and let live be a guiding sort of primordial wisdom, I think that there's a lot that we could build on together in this country. Um, so uh, that's kind of the hope of this. I think there are specific things that need to be done, as I mentioned, around um, you know, the way votes are counted, the way political parties are controlling, um, the way money is sort of dominating our world these days. But I also think that there are hopeful elements that just we all experience every day in, in our lives and in, in dealing with our friends and families. Um, and if we can bring those elements back into um, the public space as well as just the private space, uh, then I think there's a great deal of hope. But I also think that we're, we're at a cusp moment where we're waiting at Gettysburg to see whether the nation will, you know, which way, which way the nation will go. And I, I don't think we know the answer to that right now. So you can views from the side mirror, <laughs> uh, essaying America. Um, it's on, um, as I said, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and other stores. Um, I have another book in the works um, called "Not Our Father's Dreams," which is set in the '60s, and it's about sort of the evolution of that time. I'm looking for an editor. I mean, for a publisher or an agent right now for that. If anybody out there is listening, and I think it have you know a lot of huge appeal to the both to the baby boomer world and to everybody who has this long-standing abiding interest in the 60s, which really, they were a strange time in America's life, but they still have a lot of impact today. Um, so uh, thank you very much for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk to you. I really enjoyed it. Of course, man. And, and thanks for sharing all this with us. And um, yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Good deal. Unite show is sponsored by AuthorsUnite.com, your one-stop shop for becoming a profitable author and maximizing your impact.